This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I have always really enjoyed speaking with Dan Kavalik. Dan Kavalik seems to have a specialty in writing books about nations that America considers her enemies. Uh, Venezuela, Iran, Russia. It's almost like you get the sense that he's the bad guy in wrestling or at least the manager that's uh, representing the bad guy in wrestling or the announcer that's rooting for the bad wrestler. It's a funny thing with Dan Kavalik, though. You read a lot of what's in these books and... He makes a great deal of sense. I'm not embarrassed to tell you. He has persuaded me to think about things quite differently after reading some of his books. And uh, he's up for debating anybody at any time on, in any forum, left-wing shows, right-wing shows. He is a human rights and labor rights attorney, a peace activist. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And he's the author of seven Several books, including his most recent, Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Dan, it's been too long since we spoke. Welcome. Frank, it's so great to be back. I always enjoy it. Same here. Uh, I mentioned your most recent book, Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. There's a lot of countries in the news these days. For American audiences, I don't know that Nicaragua is necessarily one. Uh, obviously, Nicaragua was f very much in the news during the Iran-Contra scandal. What do we need to know about Nicaragua in your view? Why would you write this book? Why focus on this right now with so many things happening in the world? Yeah, well, uh, while you're correct, it is not in the news much. Uh, it is a big focus of Congress. Actually, uh, the Senate has or the Senate, uh, I believe, Foreign Relations Committee has been debating um, more sanctions on Nicaragua. There's been several rounds of sanctions on Nicaragua since 2018. And now the Senate's considering more sanctions, sanctions that could really devastate the Nicaraguan economy. And so uh, that's really what led me, amongst other things, to write this book. Now, those sanctions, the sanctions debate on that, it was slowed down by the a bit by the corruption scandal of Menendez, who's on that committee. And is he's the guy. Well, he's one of the senators really pushing for those sanctions. 
Uh, interesting. Menendez seems to be at the heart of uh, scandals involving a lot of the countries uh, that you're dealing with. So uh, it's, it's interesting. His name keeps popping up. Um, you, you talk about what Congress is doing. What is the status of Nicaragua these days? How's the nation doing? I mean, the truth is it's doing pretty well. It's being led by the Sandinistas, which, as you know, uh, led a revolution in 1979 against a U.S.-backed dictator, Anastasio Somoza. Somoza was a brutal dictator. He killed 50,000 Nicaraguans in the last year of his reign, mostly by aerial bombings. He bombed his own city. Uh, something a lot of people don't know, and again, mostly with U.S. munitions. Uh, the Sandinistas overthrew him, and they weren't in power very long before the U.S. began arming formal, former National Guardsmen, uh, the National Guard of the dictator, who had been flown by uh, Jimmy Carter to Honduras before he left office, and then Reagan picked them up started arming them as the Contras, and then there was another almost 10-year war against uh, Nicaragua to try to oust the Sandinistas, um, and that raised the Iran-Contra scandal. That's what that was about, that, that uh, at some point, I believe around 1987, Congress actually cut aid off to the Contras because of their human rights abuses, uh, they were, you know, basically terrorists. They ended up killing another 30,000 Nicaraguans in addition to the 50,000 Samosa killed. In any case, Congress cut off aid in 1987. And as you referred to, Reagan decided to keep funding them anyway, which, of course, was illegal. Um, and he did it two ways. One, by selling arms to Iran. Uh, which was illegal because we had an arms embargo against Iran. He used that money to to fund the Contras. But he also did it, or the CIA did it, uh, by selling cocaine on the streets of the United States and using those funds for the Contras, which, of course, when some people hear that, they're going to think I'm completely insane to say that, that I'm a conspiracy theorist, but that's been verified mm-hmm. that that happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was part of the Iran-Contra scandal you mentioned. Um, in any case, uh, the Sandinistas ended up being voted out of power in 1990, largely because of the war. The Nicaraguans wanted it to end, and that was the only way it was going to end, if they voted the Sandinistas out, which they did. Um, but in 2006, so about 16 years later, the Nicaraguans voted the Sandinistas and Daniel Ortega back in power. And since that time, the country's been doing well. Almost every year, they've had 5% economic growth. Um, since that time, the government has built 26 world-class hospitals, uh, re- reinstituted free education and health care. And actually, a very curious statistic, um, for a few years running, Nicaragua's been uh, designated by a U.N. agency as either the fifth or seventh most um, gender-equal society in the world, which is incredible for a small third-world country 
Um, the U.S. isn't even in the top 10. So actually it's doing quite well. And so, but the U.S. has been really trying again to oust the Sandinistas um, through economic means. So they've imposed several rounds of sanctions, which haven't done a lot to hurt Nicaragua. And now that brings us to today. They're considering mm. another round, which this, the what they are considering could really, could really hurt the Nicaraguan economy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, talking with uh, Dan Kavalik, his latest book is Nicaragua, A History of U.S. Intervention and Resistance. Dan, I don't think anybody, irrespective of where they fall on the political spectrum, would dispute that the United States has done a fair amount of intervening in other countries. Uh, just this past Thursday, the CIA officially came out and admitted that they participated in the uh, coup of the democratically elected government of Iran back in 1953. We see country after country where the United States has either overtly or covertly played a role in changing government or intervening in a, another country. How was the intervention in Nicaragua different from the intervention that the United States has engaged in in other places, or how was it the same? Well, the initial intervention, which put Somoza in power in 1934, that was done in a very direct way through the United States Marines. The Marines invaded in 1910 um, to protect various mining, U.S. mining interests there, and also to prevent um, Nicaragua from working with Japan to build a canal there. Um, and the Marines were there for uh, a few decades. Um, they ended up being ousted by, a, you know, a, a revolutionary leader named Augusto C. Sandino. The Sandinistas were named after him. Um, but before they left, they had actually created the National Guard that I mentioned before under the leadership of Samosa. And Samosa would go on to uh, assassinate Sandino. To declare himself president, he would be dictator again till he was ousted in 1979. So the initial creation of of the National Guard, which ruled um, Nicaragua until 1979, was through a direct military invasion, which is not as as typical today that the U.S. does it. It does it through more covert means. Now, that would be used more in the 1980s with the Contras. Mm -hmm. um, that's where the CIA came in and, and armed and trained them and directed them. That's a more typical way now that the U.S. tries to subvert uh, other countries through proxies like the Contras. Honestly, people might be surprised even through ISIS, which they did 
support. Um, they've supported ISIS on and off in countries like Syria to try to destabilize. Right. Uh, and, and that's an important the point. Government. The United States has actually supported, uh, the, you know, groups like ISIS in places like Syria. Yes. You know, and it was interesting, you know, when Trump was running for president in 2016, he said that he said right. that Obama had created ISIS. And there's some truth to that. Um he wasn't the only one involved in that, but, and in fact, Seymour Hirsch was writing as far back as in 2007 that, you know, after the war and ta- terror began in 2001, which was focused on fighting Al Qaeda, at some point the U.S.'s position towards groups like Al Qaeda shifted. And the U.S. began, again, funding groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, again, to destabilize countries like Syria. You know, so that's been going on for quite a long time. Um, yeah, and again, people were shocked when, when Trump said that. But again, there was a lot of truth to that. Um, and that sort of relationship continues to that, this day. In fact, there's a huge irony, and you might, I don't know, you might have even seen it on social media. When Netanyahu recently compared Hamas to ISIS, some people said, oh, are you going to arm them? <laughs> you know, because Israel also worked with them um, for the same reasons. So, yeah, we the, the idea of the U.S. working with these proxy forces mm. are, is not... New and again, well, I mean, we have to be honest. We have, you know, we have to go far back to the Mujahideen, right? That the U.S. was backing as far back as 1979. One of the leaders was Osama bin Laden, and yeah. he, of course, went on to form Al Qaeda. So a lot of times, these groups that we create and fund and support, they come back to attack us right it's it's like frankenstein's monster uh it, it's the oldest story and it's just such a shame that it keeps uh, repeating itself uh, with great tragedy dan kavalik is my guest uh, he's written a number of books dan one of the books that you wrote which i enjoyed very much was the plot to scapegoat russia and in a nutshell the premise of that book was essentially that uh, the Democrats and others were looking to make Russia the bad guy in the Trump Russiagate uh, campaign allegations of 2016. And they were trying to basically frame Russia for colluding with Trump wrongly. Is that the basic premise of it? That is correct. That was the reason I wrote that book. Yeah, I wrote it in 2017. And that's when Russiagate, it was shortly after the whole Russiagate allegations were ma- being made. And of course, they continue to this day, even though Biden's own Justice Department right. in the in, in the Durham report has has debunked those claims. Right. No, right? It's, I mean, I mean, every it's one of those things that they, they I guess they call them zombie lies that never go away. No matter how many times you you keep getting something that uh, that debunks it, it just keeps coming back. But the thing that was interesting to me is now we've been in the midst of this Russia Ukraine war uh, for about uh, about two years. And 
you actually visited Russia a few months ago, right in the midst of this Russia-Ukraine war where the United States is firmly on the side of Team Ukraine. You actually visited Russia recently. Yes, I've been to Russia three times. Since the war? Since since that war began, or or that, I would say that phase of the war, because as as I've written about, uh, the war really began in 2014. Um, but yeah, I went to Russia three times and I've been to during that on one occasion, I went to Crimea during that time. I took a 27 hour train to Crimea from Moscow. And then I went to Donetsk twice on those trips and that's in Eastern Ukraine. Um, yeah, so that was an incredible trip or yeah, three trips for me. And I've written extensively about those. Um, trips. Well, tell me a little bit about it. I mean, what were the highlights? What were the lowlights? Were you at all fearful? Uh, Do they just let any American go? Do you have to be a writer that writes the plot to scapegoat Russia? Uh, Give me a little more detail about those Russia trips. Yeah, well, good question. So first of all, to go to get to Russia, and this was has been true even before this all started, you needed a visa. You need a visa to go to Russia, but it's not hard to get a visa. Anyone can do it. I actually, the first time I went, which was in November of 2022, so that was almost a year ago now, I just went through a an agency. I Googled, you know, Russia visa, and I found an agency. I paid 500 bucks to it, and they help you fill out the form and all that. And I got a visa. I got a three-year multiple entry visa, and I and I went to Russia. So I didn't get in for any special reason at all. I I went again as any tourist would go. Now, once I was in Russia, you know there were some Russians who helped me get into Donetsk, which is trickier. That's for sure trickier because of the war. Obviously, that's in a war zone. So that's trickier, and I did need to. At that point, my journalistic credentials were important to get into Donetsk. But getting into Russia was not any particular trick, except that after Russia intervened in Ukraine in February of 2022, um, all, you know, the U.S in the West imposed these incredible sanctions on Russia of a type we never saw even against, even against the Soviet Union, at least not, not since World War II. And um, so you can't fly amongst many other things. You can't fly to Russia directly. You used to be able to take a, a plane from New York to Moscow. You can't do that anymore. So I had to fly through Istanbul on Turkish air and then fly into Moscow and the other thing is you have to bring all the cash you need for your trip, for everything, because Russia's been totally cut off from the Western economic system, meaning you can't use a credit card there, can't use your ATM card there. So you got to bring a mound full, full of cash that you convert into rubles and that you need for your whole trip. So you got I, I, I ran out of money at one point wow. because... You know, things were a little more expensive than I thought, and the ruble, you know, 
it's funny. Whenever I'm in a foreign country, the foreign currency feels like monopoly money. I tend to <laughs> spend it a lot quicker. But anyway, um, but 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 what I will say in terms of a highlight of the trip, of of all three trips, were the Russian people. They were very very friendly and very kind. And honestly. They were especially kind when they found out I was an American. They love Americans. Even despite all of the, uh, you know, acrimony between the two countries. And I was very surprised that it's a very Western, at least where I was at. You know, I was in Moscow, St. Petersburg. Of course, everyone knows those cities. Those are the two most famous cities in Russia. And but but you know that that's only in one time zone. Do you know Russia has eleven time zones? Mm. It's the biggest country in the world you know, in terms of landmass. But in any case, in Russia, uh, first of all, most of the menus were in English, or at least had English. You know, it was in Russian, but also had English. Uh, many people spoke English. I went to uh, a Russian who I just met. She took me out to an opera in St. Petersburg. They had English subtitles scrolling over the stage. Can you imagine? Wow. By that point, I I was probably the only one who needed them because of the sanctions. I mean, obviously, (laughs) a lot lot less foreigners from the West were coming there. But the point I'm trying to make is that they're not anti-American or anti-West. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, since Peter the Great, Russia has wanted to be part of Europe. They wanted to be part of the West. And that was true after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They thought they were going to be admitted back into the West. They'd be admitted into Europe. Um, and that never happened. Not because they didn't want it. Because the West rejected them. And that that's the truth of it. This, this bad relationship we have with Russia is completely unnecessary and completely manufactured on our end, not on their end. In fact, as I mentioned in my book, after 9-11, the first world leader to call Bush to offer condolences and help in the war on terror was Putin. Now, look, we're on the same page on this one, and I won't belabor the point because the audience has heard me go on and on about this for a long time and have a series of guests that have. But let me just ask the obvious question and get you to respond to it. A lot of people are hearing you say this, and they think you're crazy. I mean, the the history that they're familiar with, the recent history, is that uh, Vladimir Putin... And Russia invaded a sovereign neighboring country that never attacked them. How is Russia not the bad guy in this scenario? Yeah, well, and that's something that I learned a lot about when I went to Donetsk and I went to Crimea, which are very much in the, you know, they're in the hot spot of all this. So, as I mentioned when I started talking about Russia and my trip, this war started in 2014. And the war started when the U.S., and it was the Obama administration, and Joe Biden was vice president, and he was very instrumental in this, when they backed a coup d'etat in Ukraine, which brought to power 
a very anti-Russian and right-wing government, which did and does collaborate with openly neo-Nazi forces, which back then the mainstream press would from time to time discuss that fact that there were neo-Nazis there. Of course, now the press tries to deny that, but they do exist. Now, why is that important? Because the government, the right-wing government, as I said, was very anti-Russian, but not just anti-Russia. They were against their own Russian population. Mm. They outlawed the Russian language, which many people, particularly in the East, speak in Ukraine. Um, and when that happened, when they started, and they started, there were pogroms that were carried out as well. The most famous one being in Odessa, where a trade union building with Russian speaking people in it was set on fire with them in it. Uh, at least 48 people were killed. Mm. And when this sort of thing started happening, the Russian speaking population, first of all, in Crimea, which had always historically been part of Russia, except for a brief period when Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine in 1954. But it, it's a very Russian area and i i can tell you that because i was there in 2014 when this starts happening uh very quickly the crimeans held a referendum in which they overwhelmingly voted uh to rejoin russia because they didn't want any part of this they didn't want their language being Mm -hmm. suppressed they were afraid that there would be more pogroms um and killings so they went back to what they considered to be Mother Russia for protection. And uh, that was portrayed as an annexation by Russia. And the, the referendum was downplayed as somehow being unfair or whatever. But it, it, it reflected what the people wanted. I can guarantee you that. Go to Crimea. First of all, people are very happy there to be back part of Russia. Uh, but it is a very Russian um, place. And again, it makes sense, frankly, for them to be part of Russia in any case. But also um, around the same time, two republics in Ukraine in the east, the Donetsk, which I visited, and Luhansk, for the same reason Crimea did, they voted, they had their own referendums in which they simply voted to be autonomous. Not to join Russia, but to become an autonomous country. Like, you know, because, again, they felt Ukraine, the government in Kiev by that point, did not have their best interest in mind, which they didn't. And once they did that, the government in Kiev said, well, you can't leave. They declared war on those two regions, and they attacked those regions. They attacked their own people in those regions. And by the time by the time Russia intervenes, 
in February 2022, 14,000 people had died in that conflict. No, it's it's incredible. Uh, Dan, let me run through a couple of other um, issues with you before we run out of time here. Obviously, uh, I think people who are familiar with your record, or even folks that aren't but are hearing you today, they could probably tell you're a fairly left-wing guy. Yet you wrote a book recently called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against cancel culture. So often it seems it's folks on the right that are always going on and on railing against cancel culture. What is the progressive case against cancel culture? If people are going to engage in misogyny and racism and xenophobia and all these horrible things, why shouldn't they be canceled? Well, certainly, you know, It depends, you know, as I mentioned in the book, obviously, if you're a Harvey Weinstein and you rape people, yeah, go ahead and cancel those people. But the problem is people are being canceled not for terrible things like that. They're being canceled for misspeaking. And the book was actually written. It was inspired by an event that happened in my hometown here of Pittsburgh where a peace activist named Molly Rush, who'd been a peace activist, she's 80-something years old now, been a peace activist for over 50 years. She helped form a peace and justice group here over 50 years ago called the Thomas Merton Center, which still exists. She put out a tweet, or not a tweet, she put out a Facebook post in 2020 during the height of the uh, BLM protests. Uh, that simply said it was it was actually she reposted a, a, a meme that said it had a picture of Martin Luther King. And it said, never looted, never rioted, change the world. She simply reposted that. And she got all kinds. I mean, immediately there was a a pile up of her on social media being her being called racist. And people saying she, you know, she needed, I mean, people were calling for her to be canceled. They didn't use that word. They were calling for the Thomas Merton Center that she helped found 50 years ago to disassociate from her. And the Thomas Merton Center did disassociate from her. They put out a letter, an open letter that they published on Facebook and sent to all their members, including me. I'm a member of the Thomas Merton Center saying we no longer associate with Molly Rush. And they took her name as a co-founder off their website because of one meme that, by the way, she took down off of Facebook very quickly once people piled on and she apologized. But as I mentioned in the book, when you apologize for these things, it only gets worse, right? right? Uh, that's, that's a, you know, And so my, my whole thesis, based on Molly Rush, but there's thousands of Molly Rush stories in this country is is that the left is eating itself by 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 destroying people's careers and reputations over a slip of the tongue or a a meme they repost. And, And there's no there's no salvation or redemption for those people. There's no forgiveness, even when they say they're sorry. And and I I compare it to the witch trials. It's it's this is not healthy for a society. And it, it isn't healthy for the left. And, and by the way, what the left has done through this is they have in many ways destroyed themselves. The Merton Center, it exists on paper, but it's been largely destroyed. And I know of many stories that are 
like that across the country of groups that have just mm. gone away over things like this. Uh, let me end with this, Dan. Um, are you seeing more recent examples of modern cancel culture over this uh, Palestinian issue? Uh, I was very troubled in France to see that they actually have prohibited legally any demonstrations of support in support of the Palestinians, and irrespective of what people may think of the Palestinians or even Hamas, I think people should have the right to express it. Are you seeing renewed cancel culture over this issue? Oh, yes. I mean, um, this and again, I have a whole chapter in the cancel culture book on Palestine, because this this is one of the big things people are canceled over. Um, people, yes, have lost uh, professorships over this Norman Finkelstein, who actually his, um, you know, his whole family was affected by the Holocaust and the concentration camps. He lost, he's, he hasn't had a job in years because he's pro-Palestinian. And you're seeing that happen now with, you know, people being attacked for being pro-Palestinian. There was a big, uh, actually even before, you know, the events of, of last weekend, there was an event in Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago called Palestinian Rights, W-R-I-T-E-S. And it, fo- it was a, a weekend event at the University of Pennsylvania focusing on Palestinian authors who spoke throughout the weekend. That was attacked as being Nazi. Literally, there was someone who rented uh, you know, this moving billboard that went around the conference you know, claiming the people were Nazis because they were Palestinian and pro-Palestinian. So this thing is crazy. Yeah, this is one of the more fraud issues uh, in terms of cancel culture, for sure. Dan, let me end it there. I uh, appreciate the time. I hope you'll come back again soon. A lot of other things that I'd love to ask you about. Frank, it's always a pleasure. You're a great guy, and anytime I'll thank, come back. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.